0: Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and stewardship of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, and I'll be your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast. Hills Island in the Cumberland River represents a unique physical manifestation of the Cumberland River Compact's mission to enhance the health and enjoyment of the Cumberland River. The island is a 20-acre parcel of wooded land within the Cumberland River that stretches nearly half a mile adjacent to the northwestern bank of Neely's Bend, just before the Old Hickory Bridge in Nashville. The island was gifted to the Compact by 10 Green Land Conservancy in June 2021. And since the island's acquisition by 10 Green, it has been envisioned to be used as a space for education, recreation, stewardship, and research. The Compact is committed to ensuring this vision can become a reality. You can hear more about the origin of Hills Island with the Compact in our previous episode entitled Hills Island, an inspiring Nashville Island is gifted to the Compact. Ecologically, Hills Island offers an opportunity to understand the river and its biodiversity more. River islands are found across many major waterways and showcase how land and water interacts, while also providing important and separated habitats for plants and animals. Although we haven't done a full biological inventory, we know the island is home to pawpaw trees, sycamores, red maples, hackberries, cottonwoods, and deer, turkey, herons, raccoons, snakes, otters, and bald eagles call it home. Due to the varying water levels of the river, especially during high water, the island does collect debris. And there is some evidence that the island was cleared due to the age of the trees on the site, but there are some really old and large trees. Hills Island represents a long-term commitment for the Cumberland River Compact. As we aim towards activating the site as an area for research, education, and stewardship, we recognize there are intermediary steps. As we learn more about the island and its history, we became particularly interested in how enslaved and formerly enslaved people interacted with the island. There was one particular story of a man named George that piqued our interest. You will hear more about George in today's episode, but he was one of the few people we had written record of being on the island, yet we knew very little about him. We recognized that as a steward of the land, we were also a steward of the cultural history of the island. We committed to first understanding the cultural history of the island, particularly the black and indigenous history of the island, before we moved towards ecological knowledge. With our commitment to understanding and sharing cultural history in mind, we were excited to work with Dr. Lee Williams, Jr. of Tennessee State University. Through a Sustaining the Humanities with the American Rescue Plan grant from Humanities Tennessee, we were able to understand this history and build interpretive resources for the greater Nashville community. In today's River Talk, you will hear from Dr. Williams about his research into the story of Hills Island. The audio comes from a recorded webinar we held and his research is also reflected in a new Hills Island resource page available at cumberlandrivercompact.org/hills-island. And now you'll hear from Dr. Williams as he sets the stage for the discussion of Hills
1: Island. I live in Hermitage and I go across this bridge all the time. This is the For those of y'all that are familiar with the area, this is the Old Hickory Bridge. You know, you're going into Old Hickory, heading toward Madison. Um, The next time you're going across that bridge, if you look to the left, uh, you may be able to see Hills Island sticking out um, a little bit to your left. And when I first figured out where it was at, I was like, wow, I go by here all the time and I never saw it. And it it turns out that um, of all of the spaces that I have looked at in Nashville, since I arrived here in 2009, this may very well be one of the most interesting and um, arguably one that will cause me to rethink what early Nashville looked like, particularly early African-American Nashville. Hills Island, um, if we are going to give a true assessment of its history, we have to include it as, as part of the area that, Um, was originally uh, inhabited by by Native Americans. My friend, um, Albert Bender, in his work has argued that this area, this part of Middle Middle Tennessee, has been the home of um, Native Americans for more than 14,000 years. So we would be remiss to discuss this topic without mentioning them because they were the initial people to experience this island, to perhaps visit this island, to hunt on this island. But nonetheless, um, the early history of the property remains sketchy to this day because even after Donaldson and and James Robertson come to this area and they decide that you know this part of the Cumberland would be a nice place to settle there's not a whole lot of written records about this area and even those that we have are a bit spotty but what I was able to find was that um the first real account that we have of this area is a description by a lady named Emily Donaldson in, in her diary. And as we probe through this diary, she um, she mentions Cleveland Hall. As a matter of fact, she has a whole chapter or section on Cleveland Hall. This was another space that was hidden in, in plain sight. I remember driving. I was heading toward, um, heading past Andrew Jackson's Hermitage on my way to Old Hickory and then I was trying to figure out where this place could possibly be. And I I looked over to um, my left and I saw what looked like it ought to be a driveway. As I turned in there, I saw this photograph of this house. I mean, I saw this house. And I immediately recognized the pillars because this was from a photograph that I had seen of the house um, in, in Donaldson's diary. And I went and looked at the National Register nomination as well. So I was really excited. I pulled up in my truck and I looked. And I was like, okay, the gate is locked. You know, the fence is kind of low. I probably could skip across there and grab some pictures, but I refrain from doing that because I didn't want to catch any trespassing charges or anything like that. But um, I'm working on gaining access to this space because this property, which was owned by a man named Stockley Donaldson, um, was the home of many enslaved African-Americans, one of which we know lived on Hills Island. So all that is to say this, um, Donaldson was the first owner of the property. Donaldson from, he lived from 1805 to 1888, and um, he became a very well-respected and wealthy man in the community. Um, I initially looked at him as um, a businessman, but then I remembered a statement that I oftentimes tell my students, and that is this area's first big business, Nashville, or Davidson County's first big business was slavery. So I began to look at his wealth in terms of the acreage he had, um, the acreage that he paid taxes for, and then the number of people that he had enslaved. And I found something I think is really interesting. Donaldson was, and this is from the 1830s, according to the tax records, he owned about 1,200 acres of land that was valued at $18,000. Similarly, at this time, he owned 35 Africans. He uh, enslaved 35 African-Americans. And their value was $17,500. It got me to thinking, it was like, wow, so these 35 people that he owned at this time was worth almost as much as all of the land that he owned. So we began looking at that this, this, this particular property as a a space that was valuable, a space that was inhabited by people that whose value almost equaled all of the land that he had together. But this was looking at them in economic terms, and I was really interested. What I wanted to know was how they may have seen this land, how what they experienced. Um, I wanted to be able to look at the area through their eyes. And that was kind of tricky, um, especially for those of y'all that have tried to study African-American history, You you realize that there's not much written by the enslaved. Everything that we hear about them is often from the outside in. So this was a mystery that we had to try to unravel. So the first real evidence or account that we have of the enslaved people that lived there came by way of um, Donaldson's daughter, Emily Donaldson Walton. Toward the end of her life, she wrote an autobiography on um, that described life on that plantation, and then she talked about. Um, Hermitage and Donaldson and other areas. Um, But even given that, it was, there was a little bit of a problem. There was something I had to grapple with, right? In that this is essentially an elderly woman who is discussing childhood memories. And I don't know about you guys, but um, as I get older, my memory is not what it used to be, right? Sometimes I remember things as being better than they were. And then sometimes I, I suffer from amnesia. There are things that I omit. But this was all we had to go on. So Emily Donaldson, in her diary, she talks about the construction of this house. and um during the 1830s 1839 if i remember correctly and she talked about how it was by it was built by the enslaved population so right there that tells me that the people that were living there you know you have your farmers but you also have a population that is skilled that is that was very skilled because those same bricks that they made those those floors that they may have put in the house. Um, the framing that the carpenters may have done is still there. So that suggests that this population was skilled. She talks about how the women on this plantation may have um participated in the making of the clothing and so forth. So this 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 tells me that this population was very skilled. And and in this, she talks about them having a great number of slaves whose food and clothes, as well as all of their own clothes, was produced on that place. So it's a self-contained place. Now, why am I hammering at this? Why am I throwing all this up right now? It's because it's this one enslaved man that um, Um, that lived there that I want to draw your attention to. And this was was an enslaved man that was known as Uncle Guinea George. This particular man, according to her story, was a very frightening man, right? Because she said that um, um, his appearance was one that troubled everybody on the plantation. And according to her account, she said that George told them that he had been a cannibal um, back in Africa and that his teeth had been sharpened so he could chew better. I read this and I thought it was amusing because um, I I know that in certain parts of Africa, um, um, some of the cultures do sharpen their teeth, but it's not attributed to cannibalism. Um, In some places, it's it's um, a demonstrated rite of passage in some places, it could be um, a form of identity, like some of y'all may be familiar with um, scarification that serves to identify people. So when we look at this, you take it kind of tongue in cheek and when I immediately read it, I thought, maybe George told this story so that he could um, perhaps keep people at arm distance. But it, it works out to his benefit, because according to Donaldson, she says that every spring he would leave the plantation and go over on the island in the Cumberland River that belonged to my father, and later sold to my uncle John Lawrence. He said that he would stay there all summer and he would come home in the fall of the year bringing sacks of dried fruits and nuts, having camped out all summer. In fact, he seemed to be a law unto, unto himself. Most of the darkies were afraid of him, so were we children." Now, I found this statement to be interesting because it um, this was uh, an individual that was Different from um, any other people on that plantation, and that his origins very well may have been Africa. I know in one account that I found, it was discussed that sometimes he would be on the plantation, you know, singing songs in his native language. So, in essence, he's living on this island during a part of the year. And then he returns right about the time of he's returning in the fall, he's returning right about the time when the cotton is to be harvest, harvested. But somehow or another, he has been either sequestered or he managed to get his enslavers to allow him to spend time for himself on those 20 acres of land. I really wrestled with whether or not he was forced to live out there or not, because it it, it seems as though you know it, it was a situation where he was compelled to live there. But when I remember when we made our visit out to the island, and as we walked around, I looked to see how far the shore was from um, from uh, each side of the island. And I remember, telling, um, I remember telling Jasmine that in my younger days, I probably could swim that area. I could swim that distance if, if the, the current wasn't too strong. So I'm not sure, and I am, this is something, a part of the story that we're still grappling with. And that is whether or not he was there by force or there by choice. But that said, he is one of the earliest, if not the only person that we have a written record of that has been on that island. But as we moved a bit further, I wanted to. um, You know, try to confirm that this young girl saw what she saw. So I went to uh, Mary Donaldson's will and I struggled through um, all of this script here and, and I had some assistance from my, my student, but we were able to find some names that um, appear in this document that seems to confirm what Emily Donaldson saw. That is, we found these names, Jim, Ben, Camus, Frank, and then there's George. And you have someone named right? and his family, then Jimmy and Sarah and her family. So there we have established that he's there. We know that he was um, a hunter. We know that he was engaged in um, agrarian work because he would come back to the harvest. He had to have some school some skills because if he was out there for any considerable amount of time by himself, he would have had to perhaps build some structures to and, and which to live. So we have a brief sketch of Mr. George. And um, with him being a part of the Donaldson plantation, this is the way I'm gonna look at it going forward because he's part of that community. So the more that I can learn about that community, it will tell me, it will provide me more information about George and what he might've been like. But this island is not named Donaldson Island, right? It's called Hills Island. So where did that name come from? Name is associated with gentleman named Harry rw hill. Harry hill Harry hill is an interesting figure because he was during the time that he lived one of Nashville's most successful businessmen. But when we talk about businesses in Nashville, you don't really hills name doesn't come up. I know that I remember going to the city cemetery a few weeks ago um, for its bicentennial celebration. And his son is buried at a very prominent location at the cemetery, right in front of the, um, the red brick structure. You have a hill there. But what about his father? Well, his father was born in North Carolina, but he moves to middle Tennessee Um, when he's about five years old, he moves to Franklin. As a boy, he's able to gain employment um, at a local store in in Franklin and um, he develops a keen head for business. So much so that by the Um, By the early to mid-1820s, he moves to Nashville and sets up shop here. And he becomes very successful. He's an entrepreneur. He's a businessman, a very devoutly religious man. Um, We find evidence of him being involved in the establishment of of McKendree over there on Church Street. He becomes a part of a group that that creates what will become known as Franklin Pike. He becomes a merchant. Now bear in mind, let's put this all into a little bit of context here. Nashville as a city is beginning to take off. Its economy is beginning to take off at this time. And a lot of it has to do with the growth and expansion of slavery in the, in the territories. Let me bear in mind that during the 1790s, you have a revolution in Haiti. Um, you have Eli Whitney patenting the cotton gin. Then by the turn of the century, you have the United States by purchasing what becomes known as the Louisiana Territory, thus creating an empire for slavery. Nashville is perfectly situated to benefit from this because as it sits on the Cumberland, it provides a way to ship goods and people to the Deep South. So Memphis and Nashville's economies take off at this time as as they become very prosperous slave ports. Memphis becomes the most important slave port in the volunteer state, followed by Nashville. Um, I humbly submit to you all that this this purchase and the buying and selling of African-Americans during this period became, became Nashville's first big business. Then by the 1840s, by the 1850s, as, 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 um, as Hills businesses really began to take off um, in terms of America's foreign trade, um, cotton would become our most, most valuable export. By the 1840s, about cotton represented about what, over 50% of all US exports. So all of that is to say this. The business that Hill was involved in was one that was very lucrative, um, one that contributed greatly to his riches. Because bear in mind, he's not only involved in the slave trade but he's involved in shipping cotton, he's involved in buying and selling the goods that's necessary to maintain maintain the institution. And his name begins to pop up everywhere. Um, On one hand, at the public square, we see where the Union Bank of Tennessee that, um, that, that, that sits on the public square, we find that he is involved in that. At least his 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 company is involved in that. This 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 top ad that I have it says that the board of directors of the bank will serve until the first Monday of January 1834. This 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 board meeting is held at his office. Then we also find a steamer being named after him that travels between. Nashville and New Orleans. And it's going to be in New Orleans where he really makes his claim to fame Nashville becomes. um, is still important to him, but he comes he arrives in New Orleans during the late 1830s and becomes one of the biggest merchants down there. Now. Where does Hill's Island figure into all of this? There's been one account that suggested that Hill may have used um, Hill's Island as a, as a lazaretto. Lazaretto is uh, an Italian word that roughly translates into pest house. That is to say that. Um, he may have used this place as a quarantine station. And the way that typically worked would be he would bring enslaved Africans in, perhaps hold them up on that island for maybe a month, and then if they were healthy, then ship them wherever they, he was going to ship them, perhaps in Nashville or perhaps further in the South, perhaps As far south as New Orleans. This is something that was um, that I'm still working on confirming, but I I read an an excerpt that talked about him purchasing and going to and, and intending to sell enslaved people further down south. After he stopped at, and I'm quoting here, his port, his port. The the source didn't didn't reference the city of Nashville or downtown Nashville or the port of Nashville. Uh, It said his port. And so if he's doing like everybody else and he's bringing enslaved people through the, the river, the most likely place for this port would be Hills Island. That is to say this, um, if he wanted, there were plenty of places to auction off or to, um, to sell his enslaved population in downtown Nashville. At the courthouse at the public square, every Saturday, roughly around 2 o'clock, you'd have an auction. From that first corner all the way to 4th Avenue, North you had slave brokers who would uh, gladly buy and sell enslaved people for you. So we have these spaces, but none of them um, bear his name. And it's interesting too, because Hills home is not was not far from this place. Um, Hills House was located at um seventh and and goodness, I'm forgetting the street, but the street that runs right in front of, of the Veterans Memorial um, Museum. If you look right across the street, you'll see that big Sheridan Hotel. That was where his house was located. So these he's set up in a spot that was very close to where people were known to um, sell enslaved people speaking to his his riches um, he owned property all over the city when we when i went through the the tax records i found that he had property on the public square that stretched from the public square all the way on the other side of broadway Some of these spaces were very close to um, to places where they sold enslaved people on a daily basis. Um, One of the city's uh, most prominent African-Americans remembered where these markets were located. And they were dotted all along um, 4th Avenue North. But then he talked about some being located as far down as, as, as Broadway. But in retrospect, when we look at Hill, he represents um, in in many ways just how complex it is to understand this institution. Hill was one of the planters that was referenced um, in the history, in a history that was written about African American schools in the city who allowed um, enslaved children to be educated in these spaces. Hill was noted as one of the individuals that allowed some of his, 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 his enslaved children to be educated. And even when we come to his will, he says this in his will. He says, I want our Negroes to be treated well, he wrote. But for abolition, I should have been able to do more for them. But nonetheless, at the time of his death, Hill had more than 1,000 enslaved African-American men and women in his his estate, many of whom were separated from friends and family at an auction to settle his debts debts after he succumbed to yellow fever. Hill was also one of the individuals here in Nashville at the time who supported the, the annexation of Texas, a move that was directly connected to the enslavement of Black men and women. He was also a supporter of the ill-fated Narcisco Lopez uh, expedition in South America that would have, if successful, Led to the annexation of, um, of 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 some Central American land by the United States for the specific purpose of of um, of establishing or strengthening the slave power in the states. So he's a a complex man. At the time of his death, he he owned land in Texas. He owned about 1,000 acres outside of Memphis. And um, of course, he's still on property here in Nashville. So this begs the question, um, how or why did his name remain attached to this island as opposed to it becoming known as Donison Island or something else? I don't have any real answers for that other than um, I do know that when you have a series of panics that occurred or depressions that occur in the United States during the 1830s, um, he would have been able to, to deal with this better than you know many of his neighbors. So maybe there's that Uh, he was able to hold on to this property as opposed to other people um, gaining access to it. Um, This is a mystery that I'm still working on. So I don't really have any real answers for that at the moment. And still, despite the fact that he wanted to protect his enslaved population, um, we see that there was a a great sale of slaves that occurred upon his death. death. So much so, and I didn't realize this until much later on, there's a work that I sometimes use in my classes that deal with um, the slave auction. I think the title of it is called The Great Slave Auction. But as I went through the book and began to pay closer attention to the names of the owners, his name popped up. Once Isaac Franklin decides that he's going to give up his, um, you know, to give up his slave brokerage business, Hill was a part of the the group that bought him out. So on one hand, he remains an enigma. He remains uh, arguably one of the most important individuals in Nashville's early period. But I will confess to you that I had never heard of the guy before Um, I was invited to take a look at Hills Island. So that's that part of the history. The the evidence is still sketchy on that. But um, we are working our way through it. But after the Civil War, we... um, We find that the nature of the use of the island changes dramatically and that it becomes a space that is defined by recreation. That is the evidence, the record shows individuals um, coming out to Hills Island to get away from the city to hunt. to Fish, or maybe even just to hang out, and it didn't really dawn on me until a little bit later that this 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 identity as a place to um, to get rest and relaxation occurs right about during the progressive era in the United States, where there's a push for um, I don't want to say creating green spaces, but to 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 create spaces that contrast with the urbanization of America at the time. It is during this period that this area is purchased by um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this particular church spots this place, and, and they set up with the idea that they're going to build a college and a hospital in the sanitarium. I don't have any evidence to demonstrate that they use that part of the island for that. Um, I haven't seen anything that suggests that they use Hills, Hills Island for that, but its use definitely became important in terms of it being a place for recreation. And the ads that run in the papers throughout the 1920s and 1930s speak to this. The one in the corner says, "Pleasure Island, new, open from 6 to 11 p.m. Fishing, swimming, games. Um, this is off of Gallatin Pike. Six miles, turn right at Neelys Bend Road. Another ad inviting people to come out to Pleasure Island. You can come out there and you can have, um, have uh, you can enjoy yourself. You can escape the the, the city." Then there are stories that emerge about the place where, um, where a family would come out there, and it's this supposed hermit that would come out there and, 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 and spend some time in a house he built with his wife and family. But what's humorous about this is that um, this guy must have been a relatively wealthy or well-to-do hermit because on Saturday nights he throw some lavish parties out there. So this, this, this space, which would later be used by um, the YWCA who would come out there and have camps and um, other groups that would come out to Hills Island just to enjoy themselves. Um, This is what defines this this space during the early part of the 20th century. Um, There is, I think, much archaeological work that needs to be done that could help flesh out these stories of of Hills Island that that we know. One of the more interesting stories that I've come across involved a group of hunters who Decide to go hunting at Hills Island and they pay an African-American man to row them out to the island so they get out there and they hunt for a few hours, then a storm comes up on them really quickly, so they scurry back to the dock where, well, they scurry back to the spot where the um, where the African-American dropped them off and lo and behold, he was gone. So they had to ride out the storm. And if you can imagine these men on the island screaming during the thunder and lightning, trying to get somebody's attention so that it could come and get them, but they they fail in doing so. Finally, once the storm ends, they get somebody's attention and and, um, they are rescued, so to speak. Then there's a story of a woman who went out there with her husband went catfishing and she ends up pulling in like a 65 pound catfish so this is these are some of the stories that speak to this place as a recreational space initially i thought that you know it would be a place where nashville's wealthier class of people would come and try to find some um some escape from the city um but it seems as though it was a place where um, many people in the community, if they had a boat, they could get out there. In, in closing, I think, um, of course, there's still a lot to learn about um, Hills Island, particularly its history. Um, there are a lot of threads that still need to be un- uncovered. Um, I, I know for certain that members of Hills family um um, married into the Donaldson family but my interest as a professor of african-american history i i I want to kind of look at this place through the eyes of the enslaved what did that mean we know that george was able to live out there on the island by himself for a while but um Wondering if he had any visitors, and if so, what did they do? Um, this is going to take a multidisciplinary um, effort to uncover the 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 um, the history of the island in terms of the archaeology, in terms of the the ecology of the land. Then we'll need some help on telling these stories. I would be really interested in a musician who could go out there and and write something, write a piece of music that was based upon what they were feeling at the time, or maybe even a poet or an artist. Um, But it also should be a space, I believe, where we encourage our young people to come to think about nature and to think about the history, the early history of, um, of this place we call home.
0: Thank you to Dr. Lee Williams Jr. for collaborating with us to understand the history and story of Hills Island. If you'd like to read more of his work and see a multimedia experience of visiting Hills Island, please visit our website at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash hills island.